Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith. We will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Good morning, Mercy Church. In the rear of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, there is a beautiful stained glass window called the Welsh Window. It was made by a Welshman named John Petz. It depicts Jesus with his arms outstretched, and it looks at first like the crucifixion scene, but as you look closer, what you begin to see is that the right hand is pushing away, and the left hand is actually extended out towards you. Pet said the right hand is pushing away hate and the left hand is extending love and forgiveness from God the Father. Pets created the window to replace a window that was destroyed when a bomb placed by the KKK went off on Sunday morning, September 15th in 1963. That morning, four young girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair, Age 14, three of them, 11, Carol Denise McNair, were in the basement of the church putting on their choir robes, getting ready to sing during the pastor's sermon entitled, A Love That Forgives. At 10.22 a.m., an anonymous caller called in and only said three minutes. One minute later, the bomb detonated in the basement, killing these four young girls. Their bodies were found badly mutilated, clinging to one another. It was a disgusting act of terrorism that broke a community already deeply fractured by racism. Many say it was the moment, again, just a few weeks after the speech that you heard. It was the moment compounded with that speech that many in America woke up to the injustices that were happening right around them. John Petz contacted the pastor of the church just a couple days after the bombing, saying he wanted to replace the window. He solicited funds from his countrymen, and there's even a small engraving across the bottom of the window that reads, given by the people of Wales, and he said his inspiration was Matthew 25, 40. But truly, I tell you, whatever you do to the least of these, 
brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Just five months earlier, Dr. King had been arrested in Birmingham for nonviolent protests against discrimination practices happening in the city. And while in prison, he wrote a letter, a letter that has become a very famous, well-known letter called simply the letter from a Birmingham jail. He wrote it to church leaders in Birmingham who had chosen and had led their churches to choose comfort over courage. He said he just assumed since he believed the same gospel that they believed that they would not stand for the injustice being inflicted on the African-American community. His greatest disappointment was that his brothers in Christ had abandoned him in a great hour of need. He grieved that they were, in his words, page 17 of the letter, sitting quietly on the sidelines. Dr. King's work was informed by a theology that says we are one in Christ and must be unified in our pursuit of the mission of God. And this letter, the speech in Washington, the bombing, brought many churched eyes to finally see what Scripture had been telling us for generations. That because of Christ, African-American Christians and Anglo-American Christians were now made into a family. God's people were their people, brothers and sisters. And the problem before them was that the most segregated hour in America was the broken family of Christ. We're in part three of our sermon series that we're titling, I'm In. And what we're saying is, church, God is still alive. He is still present. He is still moving. He is working in our world, and he has invited us into what he is doing. And too many of us find ourselves sitting on the sidelines of that, maybe on purpose, maybe out of fear. Maybe we don't know any better or, know, or not feel equipped. But too many are sitting and watching while God is calling us to be actively engaged. There are, in reality, no bleachers in the church. I told you part of this series is calling you to be in to ministry with Mercy Church, to step off the sidelines and get involved here. And I believe in this church, otherwise I wouldn't call you to that. I believe we should serve one another. I believe we should belong to one another in the context of community. But it's, this series is about something much deeper in our hearts than church programming. It's a commitment to God to leverage our lives for his glory and his purposes. It's a commitment to one another to say, I'm with you. Come what may, your pain is my pain, your joy is my joy, because God's people are my people. It's a new year, it's a new decade, and we want to take this moment together to say we're not going to sit on the sidelines anymore. God has called us to leverage our voices for his purposes, not our own, and that only happens when we first give ourselves fully to God. And y'all, he has created us. This is the beauty of this, uh, what, I, what I've kind of sensed in this series as I've walked through John 13 through 17 with you guys, is that when we make our lives about his glory, that's actually where we find true fulfillment. No career, no relationship, no amount of wealth, no amount of awards or vacations can come close to what life in God's presence with God's people on God's mission can bring us. And when a bunch of Christians lock arms together in his mission, there's nothing better on earth to be a part of. Today, we're going to be in John 17. If you got your Bible, make your way over there. This is where Jesus prays for God's people. The unity that Dr. King was calling for was the unity that he saw Jesus pray for in John 17. So I want to show you this prayer. Y'all, it is a holy mountaintop in Scripture. 
It is simple. It is profound. It's often called the high priestly prayer. I'm going to read a few verses to you, verses 20 through 23, and we're going to look at the four movements of this prayer together because we're going to need to know what it is that Christ is praying for his church, what it is that when we say, I'm in, we need to know what we're in for. I'm telling you, even reading this prayer is to be transported into the sacred. So I want you to listen as I read it over you, and then we'll look at what it means for us. Verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This prayer has a progression to it, a buildup. He says, so that a couple of times as he continues to petition God the Father. In order for one thing to happen, something else has got to happen. And I need you to see that progression because by the end of it, Jesus paints this beautiful picture of how God is going to move in the world. It's not an understatement to say that everything God is doing now, here and now in our world, he's doing an answer to this prayer that Jesus prays. The move of God that you and I get to be a part of when we hold up our hand and we say, I'm in God for whatever you have for me. This is it. I'm going to show you the four movements that this prayer progresses through and what it means for God to answer this prayer in and through us today. Here's the first move. It's in verse 20. Christ prays for the multicultural, multigenerational church. Verse 20 says, I pray not only for these, but also for those. I got to show you who the these and the those are. And this is the move in the prayer that you might not see at first glance because it's easy to move to what he is praying for and to gloss over who he is actually praying for. Christ is praying, of course, first, you know, when he talks about the these for his disciples that are present right there with him. That's the these, that's the context. But he's also praying for those. He's praying for those who would believe and who would become a part of the church. Eventually, that's going to be us. I want to back out and I want to show you who God desires to be among the those that he's praying for. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to do about a five to seven minute, I haven't timed it out or anything, but I'm guessing about a five to seven minute detour into who the people of God are. Now, look, this could be a whole sermon series, and maybe one day it will be, but we're going to do a zoomed out survey. We're going to start in Genesis 1. We're going to finish in Revelation, okay? Because I want you to understand this prayer. I know, y'all, I love the Bible, all right? It's good for you, and it, it, oh, listen, we start in Genesis, and what do you see? God's people are the crowning jewel in his creation, right? He creates everything. He says it's good. Then he creates man and woman, and he says it's very good. He created them in his image, and he created these people to walk with him. Remember, he created two people, and not two of the same people. He created a man and a woman who are different, all right? Very different, still true today. And he said these two different beings were made to live in beautiful unity under God's reign in the joy of his provision and his presence. But instead, Genesis 3, they rebel against him. 
By Genesis 11, people are actually working together to rebel against God by building a tower to the heavens. You may remember it from your Sunday school. For those of you who grew up in church, is the Tower of Babel. And they're trying to make a name for themselves. So God confuses their language and he scatters them across the earth because God's people are made to be unified in their submission to God, not unified in their rebellion against God. But the next thing he does is Genesis 12. Genesis 11 ends with him scattering them around the earth. And then Genesis 12 starts with God calling Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then God zeroes in on that. He said, this is going to be the Hebrew nation. I'll make a great nation out of you. But then all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. The first thing God says after scattering his people is he starts talking about his plan to bring them back together. This is what the purpose of God's people become in the Old Testament. You see Rahab. Look, I don't have enough time to go through all of them, of course. But you see Rahab in Jericho. She's a prostitute. She's not an ethnic Jew. She's not Hebrew. And yet God brings her into the fold. You see Ruth, a Moabite. Again, not an ethnic Jew, not Hebrew. But she becomes grafted into the people of God through Boaz. You see Nineveh. You see God called Jonah. Go to Nineveh, a city that's full of rebels. It makes Tortuga look like Myers Park, right? And God calls his prophet Jonah. He says, go get them because I want them to be a part of my people. Psalm 67, let the nations, plural, all of them, be glad and sing for joy. Let the nations come in and be a part of my people. You go to the New Testament, Matthew 28 ends with a commission from Christ. And what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Panta, ta, ethne, panta, all, ethne, people, groups, every people group, because God is the one God for all peoples. And the move of God, listen, it's a move to all peoples. Every person is made in the image of God. And so every person is a target of the love of God. Acts 2, Pentecost, what happens? Now we see God start to answer Jesus's prayer from John 17. Jews from across the world first, they hear the gospel in their own language. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. People who speak different languages are now brought together under the name of Christ. Acts 10, God makes it clear to Peter that non-Jews, Gentiles, must be told the gospel and brought into the church as brothers and sisters, as family. And the word pictures in the New Testament start getting really, really intimate from here. We're not just a community. We're not just friends. We are one family, even one body. These different people groups are brought in tight together with one another. Ephesians 2, 13, Paul says to a church in Ephesus who is struggling with cultural hostility, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now in Christ, you who are far away Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down. He's already done it. You don't have to try and tear down the wall. Christ has already done it. You just have to walk in what he's already done. He's already torn down the dividing wall of hostility. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, the passage that Mercy Church was named after, Peter saying the church is a new chosen race. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people The church is now a people for his own possession, God's people, so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, once you were just separate people belonging to your own cultures, belonging to your own people groups, but now you got a new identity. Now you're God's people because once you had not received the mercy that you now have in Christ, but now you've received mercy. 
Now you have received forgiveness in Christ. Titus 2. It's not just multicultural, it's multi-generational. Older men are to teach younger men. Older women are to teach younger women. Following Christ wasn't, some, wasn't something you were just supposed to do when you're really excited in your teens and 20s. It's to be a way of life that you consistently grow into. And that's by experiencing family life with God's people. So that when you come from a broken home, you experience fatherhood and motherhood as God always designed for you. So that you can change your family destiny and the sins of your parents aren't visited on your children because you have found fathers and mothers in the faith who teach you how to walk with Christ. James 1, widows and orphans are to be prioritized and cared for in this family, valued here even as society marginalizes them. And all this creates God's people, the people who reflect as best they can the one day where we're all in heaven together. We're not there yet, but Revelation 7, 9 and 10, we looked at earlier, tells us who the church is. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every Every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. From beginning to end, the scriptures are showing that our God is a God of all people groups, that God's people are a redeemed multicultural, multi-generational family who sings all the way from its toes with full hearts that salvation belongs to our God. He's not just my God. In fact, he's primarily not just my God. He is our God, which means if I belong to him and others belong to him, then all of his people are my people. See, mercy, the story of scripture is the story of God calling out a people from every people group, binding them together through the blood of Jesus and keeping them together through his Holy Spirit. And the cool thing is, like I said, we don't have to achieve multiculturalism. Christ has already achieved it. He has already made up his mind that the church will be one people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He has bought back through his blood a people from all people. And the church, we just have the opportunity to experience the fullness of all that God is ready to offer us. His people can be your people. There's a woman named Sandra Maria Van Opstel. She wrote a book about how this reality that God has already established for us, bought for us, can bless a church as it worships and throughout its life, day in, day out. I want to take a second to read a spot in her book. She said something I thought was really helpful for us today. She said, in the end, the beloved community, which consists of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language, worships God. This breathtaking family will be present in all of its beauty. That's the one day the kings and the nations will bring their glorious gifts into the city of God. There will be sounds, smells, movements, and colors that point to the creative nature of God and his people. There's not going to be a corner of heaven for the quiet worshipers and another for the dancers. And since on this side of history, we've seen the season finale, our call is to live as a foretaste of that reality. We're to celebrate and desire all the God-given gifts that communities bring in worship. Revelation reminds us that when all is restored and God's shalom reigns, the gifts of the nations will be visible and present. Mercy, I want everything God has for us. Somebody asked me this week why I care about this, why I care about the unity of the church, 
the multicultural, multi-generational unity of the church, something that I have, in many ways, this just this sermon is one that I have sat before the Lord in ever since we launched Mercy Church, and even before it, I was praying for it and just waiting for when the scriptures brought that to us um, to go. And the question was, why do I care about it? I had a couple of responses. The first is, God cares. God cares. That's why I care. But secondly, why would I not want to receive all the blessings God has for Mercy Church? Why would I want to push back at all against the gift of all of God's people being my people? Why would I not want to learn from God's people who have experienced suffering in a way that I haven't and to be formed by their perseverance in love? Why would, I want to, why would I not want to learn community, that sense of togetherness that comes from God's people who come from cultures where dinners last eight hours and people get real with one another? Why would I not want that? Why would I not want grandparent age believers in our church who can teach out and live out, who can be the tightest two guides through life that God calls them to be and who God says I need regularly around here. When I meet men and women, who are couples who are married, their kids are grown and they're still alive and somewhat sane, I'm like, this is great hope for me, right? I got four young kids. I'm like, you're alive. Awesome. That alone is encouragement. Why would I not want that? Why would I not want to learn from God's people who've experienced persecution from their faith coming from closed countries? The theologians, the songs, the sermons, the disciplines of the faith formed among Christians in such cultures, they are God's gift to me if I'll just receive God's people as my people. The more we reflect, church, the more we look like the multicultural, multigenerational vision of heaven, the more we get to experience the beauty and majesty of heaven together here and now. The God who created us differently. It's the God who did that intentionally to bring us together to see more of who he is. And he has far more blessings for us together than he does for us apart. That's the these who he's praying for. Let me show you the second move. Christ prays for the multicultural, multigenerational church. The first thing he prays for them to do is to abide in him. The three progressions you're going to see next in this prayer are woven together so beautifully uh, because they really do all happen together. I'm going to try and highlight them in an order that reflects the lessons on spiritual growth that Christ has taught from John 13 up until this moment, okay? And first you see it, you see it three different times where he talks about abiding in him. He says in verse 21, may they also be in us, Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you've given me. Verse 23, I am in them. His prayer, may they be in us. Listen, for the first two weeks of this series, we pressed this home really hard. And that's because Jesus pressed it home really hard. And listen, you need to go back and listen to it if you missed it, especially last week, because before you can say I'm in to God's movement in the world, you gotta say I'm in to God himself, that was Jesus's first instruction. And now he's just asking God to grant that which he commanded disciples to go get after. To explain what it means to be in Christ, he gave an illustration over in John 15, said he is the vine and they are the branches. Branches are supposed to produce fruit. You and I are supposed to produce good works through obeying Christ. And that's going to cause others to see Christ. 
But the only way the branch can produce fruit is if it receives nutrients and nourishment from the vine. The vine is the source of life for the branch. So Jesus says, to connect the illustration, he says, you got to remain in me. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So our real call this series, and it's the call of Mercy Church. Listen, God is calling us to obedience, but to a whole new kind of obedience. An obedience that flows out of a love for him and what he has done for you. The way you get right with God, listen, this is big for some of you. The way you get right with God is not to clean yourself up. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition. Maybe you didn't, but just about everyone checking out church, maybe that's you today. You get the first part of the gospel right. You think we're all sinners. I messed up. I need help. Nobody's perfect. We mess up. But the second part, we almost always get wrong. We think the answer is to clean ourselves up. And maybe church will inspire me to work on me. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says you're a branch. Branches can't grow fruit on their own. They need the vine. You need to receive God's love for you. You can't do anything to earn it. Branches don't approach the vine and say, look at me, I'm a very impressive branch. You should give me more nutrients. Of course not, that's absurd. All they can do is receive what the vine gives them. So my call to you today is to receive. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We cannot clean ourselves up enough to get right with God. The only way to be healed from our sin is to receive what Christ has done for us. Receive his death on the cross as payment for your sin. God says your sins are paid for in Christ. It's a humbling thing to receive that. But you can't receive anything else from God until you receive that. But what comes with that? What comes with his forgiveness what comes with the peace that he makes between you and himself is the very presence of God with you. And what he has given us in his presence is his glory. So Jesus says, I have given them my glory. And y'all, the essence of Jesus's vision for the church, it's not primarily a community that brings healing to people, although that's an important part. It's not primarily a community that imparts knowledge in order to build up wisdom, although that's an important part. It's not primarily a community that evangelizes, although that is an important part. The church is a community that invites people to touch the glory of God, to be changed by it, and then bear it to the world. My prayer over our worship gatherings each week is John the Baptist's prayer. He must increase, I must decrease. For a people constantly distracted, I'm praying these moments here together, God would lift the eyes of your hearts to see him and his glory and be changed by it. Here's the next move, the third move in the prayer. Christ prays for the multicultural, multi-generational church to abide in him so that we will be unified, so that we will be one. If we abide in Christ, then we have the power to walk in the unity Christ has created for us. Remember, unity is not something we achieve, right? He's already torn down the dividing wall of hostility before unity is an activity of the church. Unity is an identity of the church. It's who we are. Now, how do we walk in this unity? First, we remain in Christ. That means daily walking in the spirit of that joy prayer that I gave you in week one. I did not intend this prayer to come up every week, but the more I keep going through our messages, the more I'm like, we need this so much. 
All right, that prayer, that it's just the acronym joy, right? God, I desire joy in you today, so help me to see, help me to see, Father, Jesus first. Let me abide in Christ. Help me to see others second and then myself last. Y'all, most disunity, most struggles to embrace the differences of even one other person or a culture or a different generation comes from focusing on ourselves. That's our sin instinct. But the gospel instinct is to look at another before looking at ourselves. See, usually a sign that we're looking at ourselves before another when it comes to this idea is that we say we want unity, but what we really want is uniformity. Where people from all cultures and generations conform to our way of doing things. That's not unity, that's compliance. It's uniformity. Um, Pastor Richard has an uncle who is a Creole cook. He cooks gumbo and he says, true gumbo must have, absolutely important, gotta have it or it's not gumbo, must have celery, onions, and garlic. He says, sometimes though, people will come and they'll try and order gumbo and say no onions. But he says, that ain't gumbo, can't do that. So in order for him to be like, be able to live with himself and sleep at night, what he does is he takes onions, puts them in a Ziploc bag, and then dips them in the gumbo for a little bit before serving it so that he can say it's gumbo. Y'all listen to me. That's how a lot of people want church. We want to be the multicultural, multi-generational church. We just don't want anyone's presence changing the flavor. That's not unity. And it is offensive to the God who went to the cross to create true unity. And true unity means believers from every culture don't just participate in one culture's expression of church life. Believers from every culture help shape the collective expression of church life. So let me talk to you for a second first, who find yourself in the majority here at Mercy Church. Some of you may be in the majority generationally, but in the minority culturally, some of you might be in the minority in both or in the majority in both. I have been a young white male my whole life, okay? And I mean, there's a question of whether I'm still young or not. I'm sitting with my daughter yesterday and as kindly and actually as complimentary as she could, she's sitting right here beside me. She goes, daddy, your beard's getting so white. I was like, thank you? I don't, I don't know. But, but listen, I know I'm in the majority twice here, I feel like. Listen, being in the majority culture or generation, first, I need to say it's not a sin. Sometimes our reaction to being identified as a part of the majority is to wonder if you're, asked, if you're being asked to apologize for that. That's absurd. Like I said earlier, God created each of us beautifully. Scripture says you are beautifully and wonderfully made. The same God that created one person beautifully brown created me beautifully pasty white. All right, that's his prerogative. And seeing others before yourself means a readiness to embrace cultures and generations, not just different skin colors and hair colors. And when it comes to some expressions in our church, listen, I'm not talking about theology here, though I think our theology will grow richer and deeper as a result of our unity together. I'm talking about like how we worship. Listen, you should expect to be a little uncomfortable sometimes. But when you feel uncomfortable, again, talking to you in the majority, whether that's generationally, culturally, or both, when you feel uncomfortable, there are a couple things I want you to think. One, there are others who feel way more uncomfortable than you most of the time. 
So see others before yourself. But secondly, maybe that discomfort is an opportunity to embrace the fullness of God that you've never been able to experience before because that culture or generation hasn't been influencing you until now. Maybe God's got something that he's unlocking for you in that if you'll receive it. Listen to you in the minority culture or generation. I recognize the first question you ask when you come to Mercy Church is, is this a church for me? Do I belong here? Do they want me here? Let me tell you as your pastor, first a resounding yes. I hope everything I've shown you in scripture is telling you our desire for mercy is to be a church for all people. But listen, you too have to receive God's people as your people. To be a minority in a church family, it means speaking up to me and other leaders to help us see blind spots. Instead of wondering if this is the church for you, instead of waiting on the church to disappoint you, lock arms, get involved, and help us step into the church God is calling us to be. You're a part of God's answer to the very question that you're asking. And then grant more patience than you ever thought you could muster as we work to change things to make them more in line with God's glory. We got a couple of families here who are members of our church who are from Liberia. They invited my family and a couple others to dinner a few months back. And as we stood in the kitchen, William Ward, he said, this meal in our home is our way of, in, in our culture of saying, we're inviting you into our family as you have invited us into Mercy's family. And that impacts me. That remains with me. The power of a shared meal together. And that's what I'm talking about. Mercy needs to be a family meal kind of church. And the wards and the Massacoys are helping to make that happen. It's the commitment of families like the Browns, the Howards, the Williamses to host community groups where most of their group members are the age of their kids or younger. They're spiritual mothers and fathers to our church, which is instilling and passing on a faith that will carry the younger generation through the storms of life. Here's the last thing, the last move we see. Christ prays for the multicultural, multi-generational church to abide in him so that we will be unified and the world will encounter its savior. This is the final so that. All this unity is for something. Unity for the sake of unity is not what God is after. He wants unity for the sake of making the name of Jesus so powerful, so beautiful that it's like a magnet to the people of our world. Y'all, the Charlotte area is still tragically segregated, not legally, of course, but there's a reason why when I moved here, some people, not Christians that I know of, um, but they told me the good and the bad places to live. The people who said that to me need Jesus. Those people who said that to me need to see a brown-skinned Jesus who's pushing back that hate and who's extending that love and forgiveness to be reconciled to God, to Father, the God, the Father. They need to see his love practiced by a multicultural, multi-generational people who believe it. And then they'll see he's the only hope for their salvation. You know, the last line in Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus gives the great commission, to go make disciples of all nations, the last line should be a cue to us that it's not gonna be easy. It'll be so difficult that Jesus himself is going to stay with us until the end of the age in order to make it happen. He's not handing this one off. He's not subcontracting this to Gabriel or another angel or something. 
He says, he will be with us until the very end of the age. And y'all, that brings us back to the communion table. Dr. King had a dream that one day sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners would sit down together at what he called the table of brotherhood. God has always intended that table to be the communion table where we are brought back to our identity as a new family in Christ, sitting down together with the scars of sin, but freed from its power over us. Drinking and eating together the symbol of our freedom, the symbol of our unity, and calling the watching world to something better. And we're going to take communion in just a moment together. And I want to call you first, first, to receive again as a bunch of branches, as a church, to receive again from the vine God's love for you. See, communion is the the meal that he gave the church to remind them of his love. He said, as often as you take it, what you're doing is you're remembering him. You're abiding in him, making your home in him because we can't do anything apart from him. So what we're gonna do, Providence Road, Independence, what we're gonna do is we're gonna have teams set up around the room to serve communion to you brothers and sisters serving it to you. Our worship teams are gonna let us know when it's time for us to get up and take the elements, but here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna come up and you're gonna approach the communion elements held by a brother or a sister in Christ, and you're gonna allow them, you gotta stand there, might be awkward for a moment, you need to move past that, because what's gonna happen is an exchange happens. They are gonna speak over you. This is the body of Christ given for you. Y'all, this is how we abide in Christ. We remember what Christ has done for us. We allow, we gospel one another. We allow the truths of the gospel to be spoken over us and we receive it. Sit there and as you take it right there in front of that person, allow them to speak that truth over you. You step over to the blood of Christ, to the cup. And as you drink it, allow that person to say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And you receive that, abide in him, receive from the vine, the love of God again, afresh. Hear the gospel spoken over you and believe again. We've got a couple of songs. There is no need to rush this thing. Allow it to be spoken over you. You take the elements as that is spoken over you. If you're not a Christian, listen. This is what Christ calls the believers to do. This is a table of unity, regardless of whatever background you come from, whatever age you are. We are together, one in Christ, and we show that around the table together. But for you, if you're not a Christian, before you take the elements, you need to receive the love of God for you. And that's simply to admit you're a sinner. Like we talked about, maybe the reason you came in here, realizing you're a sinner. I believe God has that for some of you today. Admit that you're a sinner. Yes, God, I believe I need your help. And then receive. I believe Christ died for me. I want you to bow your head, both of our locations. I want to give you a second to reflect and to talk with God, to prepare your heart to come take these elements. Maybe you need to say, thank you, God, for saving me. Maybe you need to confess some sin that you've been holding on to, Christian. Bitterness towards someone. 
Maybe it's just a fact that you've only given God part of your life, not all of your life. You know what it is. You spend that time. Don't come to this table before again, repenting, turning from sin and coming to embrace the forgiveness God offers you. If you're not a Christian today, receive. Don't delay. Today, receive salvation that God offers you. I'm gonna pray for us and then our worship teams will come and lead us in taking these elements. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you have bought a people from all people. Oh God, we love you. Oh God, we say thank you. May you get glory through Mercy Church. The glory you have given us, may it shine through to the world here in the Charlotte area and beyond to the far ends of the earth. As we receive communion, may Christ be lifted in the eyes of our hearts again today. You continue to pray, you continue to reflect, and our worship teams will come to lead us.